Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. And Essie Ramirez. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Lainey, and I'm very excited to introduce our editor for our Editors Unedited episode this week. Um, I'm welcoming Deanne Ermey, editor-at-large at Mariner Books. Hi, Deanne. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for doing this, and you have a great author, so I'm going to hand it off to you. I am happy to have it handed off to me and to David. So um, we are talking today, I'm talking today to David Cypress. He's a longtime, iconic, beloved staff cartoonist at The New Yorker, where he's published about 700 cartoons since 1998. And his autobiographical writing appears often on newyorker.com. So, you know, there's pretty much no chance if you do what I did the minute this proposal came in and Googled David Cypress cartoons, that you won't be flooded with instant recognition of David's writerly, masterly line and his uh, take on the world. Everybody has a favorite David Cypress cartoon, or maybe several. I, I have noticed I am going since since this since I began editing this book. I go into a lot of people's kitchens, or as many as you can during the pandemic, and I see David Cypress cartoons on the refrigerator. So, um, and I'm going to talk about that a little later because they always seem to be about relationships. Those cartoons that are on the refrigerators, but. Um, for this book, David has done something pretty unusual for a cartoonist. In his book, What's So Funny, he's written a memoir that depends on words, on storytelling. Um, in a starred Kirkus review, they call this addictive, witty, David Sedaris-esque storytelling. So, David, let's start by just, you know, telling us more about this book. Yeah, the book is a memoir. It's this my story of my life or a portion of my life starting when I was growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And it's at the same time the story of my family my and my relationship to my father, my mother, and my sister, who are the main characters in the book. And uh, the book is rather than just a flowing memoir, it's a series of almost like short stories that are more or less chronological and, and connect up. And the other thing about the book is that it's also the story of my cartooning, both my career and also uh, the process, the creative process of coming up with cartoons. I hope to make the reader more familiar with how that works, the coming up with ideas, the drawing and the writing of the captions. And um, yeah, that's pretty, and, and what I've done is, uh, I've, I've, it's a prose memoir but it's sprinkled throughout with cartoons that I, uh, I add at certain points in the narrative where they enlighten or more important, add a certain dash of humor to whatever story or anecdote I'm telling. So, you know, I wanna, I realize 
I kind of want to stick to this idea of storytelling for a minute. Um, I'm going to go right to this. I, you might not know this, but I think my favorite story in the book is the chapter called Robbery. Um, I think, you know, it is just because it is my favorite, but it also, I realized I was as thinking about it, it really takes us to a lot of the things that you talk about in this book, your relationship with your family, especially your father, growing up in mid-century Upper West Side, New York City, and, you know, especially how your brain works around scary things. Could you could you just give us a, um, a you know, a, just just tell, tell, us, tell us that story. Tell us robbery just for a sec. Okay. Um, this was uh, right around Christmas time uh, in 1959. And my father had a, a jewelry shop on Lexington Avenue in New York, about a block north of Bloomingdale's. And he always had told us that he had this security system that would allow him never to be robbed in his store. And then he would point to his glasses, which were very thick and uh, indicate his eyes. And he would say, if they don't look good to me, I don't buzz them in. Well, one night uh, I came home, I had been to see the movie Ben-Hur uh, and uh, I came home and my mother wasn't there, which was most unusual. And Eventually, when she came home, I could tell that she was really upset. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, well, your father will tell you when he gets home. Well, at dinner that night, my father told us the story of the robbery. Uh, two guys had come in. Uh, they looked good to him, so he let them in because they had nice overcoats and Bloomingdale's bags. Uh, and um, immediately, they, one of them pulled a gun in my father's face and demanded that my father hand over, and I'm not gonna go into everything, but when they demanded that my father hand over the jewelry, especially the valuable jewelry, my father said, no, you can't have it. And uh, the, the criminal said, well, you know, if you don't give it to us, we're gonna shoot you. And, I, and my father said, well, go ahead, shoot me. And basically, as is typical for my father, he was able to bargain himself out of the situation and eventually sent them on their way with, a, I think, a $25 uh, wedding ring. And But the impact of the story on me, and it, it's much longer, and the dialogue, I, it's, I tried to capture the d dialogue of my father's storytelling about this long encounter with these two thugs. But for me, when I listened to my father at dinner that night tell the story, I first thought was, wow, my father, he's so brave. He's so cool. He, he stands up to these guys. But gradually began to dawn on me that he had basically said to them, go ahead, kill me. You're not getting my cufflinks, my necklaces, my rings. And I thought, what about me? What, doesn't he realize that if he's shot, and he dies, I'm not gonna have a father. He won't be around anymore. Does he really care more about the jewelry than he does about me? And that was the devastating impact that that story had on me uh, as, a, as a kid. So- Yeah, your, your father was, was sometimes so unbound, kind of tr transgressive. So how do you, did he make you a cartoonist? Well, in some ways in opposition to him, I think a little bit. Um, but he certainly did not want me to be a cartoonist. That was the last thing in the world he wanted. But uh, many of my cartoons are, are uh, rooted in my relationship with my father, I have to say. 
And I want to go back to that. You said the word dialogue, and that's one of the things readers will immediately, you know, pick up on in the book. Your dialogue is just spot on. It takes you back. It sounds, it's completely oral. It's funny. Um, what do you think you learned about um, dialogue from cartooning? Well, if you think about it, and I've done probably 20,000 cartoons in my life, uh, every single one of them, with a few exceptions, uh, the caption is a line of dialogue. It's one person speaking to another. So I feel like at some point I have to say I'm pretty practiced at writing dialogue and that's the reason why. And once I started writing the book, the parts of the book that just came so easily, almost like skiing downhill, with the dialogue. I just found that that stuff just comes out of me uh, without without uh, any hesitation. Uh, I love writing dialogue. I, I include a lot of uh, my sessions with my therapist in the book, uh, which for various reasons, but those of course are entirely dialogue. And uh, I had so much fun writing those. Yeah, it's funny. I just realized, you know, you're a New Yorker. You lived in Boston for a decade, but you've lived in New York all your life. And um, the the oral quality of that, you know, you just you're somebody who's listened to dialogue all your life, the way I think New Yorkers do. Um, you can't help it, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, going out here, spending a day out in the city, listening, or just being at a party, or even maybe during this podcast. There's a part of my brain that's listening to what's said and thinking, can I, is there a cartoon in that? Is there some way I could use that in a cartoon? And uh, so, yeah, and, and New York is great for that because one thing that goes on here is there's a lot of people talking to a lot of other people. Uh, so there's a lot to listen to. And, and these days I have to take out a pad and write it down immediately or I'll forget it. But I do carry <laughs> a pad around with me to, catch every uh, bit of dialogue I hear that might appeal to me. So I want to take a little deeper dive into the cartoonist's brain. Um, you know, I, you, you write in the book that this, this, you wrote what's so funny in part to answer the question that cartoonists always get, that you always get, how do you get your ideas? Um, and you do something in the book, which is just, you know, interleaf these cartoons in such an intimate spot on way with the text that I think a, a reader does get an idea of, of what it's like to have your brain to some ideas, to some extent. But what is the cartoonist's brain? What's your brain anyway? I think it's what I was saying a moment ago. It's, it's antennas out all the time, even if I'm not entirely conscious of it listening for something that I can use, something that I can turn into a cartoon. Not just words, but all kinds of experiences. There's one thing that came became apparent to me in writing this book. It was that there's almost nothing I've experienced in my life, nothing I've seen, felt, or heard that I haven't made a cartoon about at some point. Um, so the, this cartoon brain of mine is on all the time. I, I'll give you an example. Um, just before this podcast started, Deanne, you revealed that you have a bad, your back is hurting you. And uh, once several years ago, I had unbelievable excruciating back pain, couldn't sleep, tossed and turned all night, couldn't get comfortable. Uh, anybody who saw me thought I was crippled. I had terrible pain that 
came on when I sat, when I walked, it just never stopped. Well, I finally went to the doctor. And uh, while the doctor was talking to me about my situation, a cartoon popped into my head, uh, which is one of my favorites. And I later drew it and it's me and the doctor and the doctor saying to me, I can cure your back problem, but there's a risk you'll be left with nothing to talk about. <laughs> so that's, that's the way it works. Um, even when I'm in uh, a situation where I'm in pain or discomfort, I'm still looking for that joke, still looking for that cartoon. So how about sort of a flip side of that? You know, I'm not going to ask you if you ever come up with inappropriate or, uh, you know, cartoons, because I know you do. I know you must. But um, how about give us an example and what do you do when that happens? When I think up an inappropriate cartoon? Yeah. Oh, well, all right. One of the moments that I thought up, the most inappropriate moments I thought up a cartoon was during an argument with my wife, Ginny, several years ago. Uh, Ginny was trained as a lawyer, and so she is very conscious of issues of right and wrong. And in those arguments early in our marriage, uh, which got pretty fierce at times, she always said this one thing over and over and over again. And in the middle of an argument we were having, she said it, and then she looked at me because my something in my eyes, she said, you're not thinking up a cartoon, are you? <laughs> right now in the middle of this discussion? Oh, no, no, I said, I'm not thinking up a cartoon. No way, no, no, no. <laughs> well, a month later, she opened the New Yorker and there was a drawing of mine of a man and a woman having an argument. And the man is saying to the woman, if it really doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong, why don't I be right and you be wrong? <laughs> so Sounds sounds a little familiar. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm so glad you brought up Ginny because I really love, I mean, you know, I'm going to say it sounds weird. The use you make of her, both in the storytelling and in the cartoon, she has, she, she has a real role in, in this book. How would you describe the role she plays in the book? It's the same role she plays in my life, which is um, I tend to panic, freak out, worry a lot. And she always grounds me and reminds me uh, to be calm and not not to take anything too seriously. And she saw truths, especially about all three of my family members, that I was too close to see. And so I would always come back from encounters with my family and run them by Ginny. And Ginny would always give me a new perspective, something I hadn't thought of. And she would calm me down and help me see that uh, whatever happened was not the end of the world. She's just very smart. And um, uh, I don't know how I could have written this book without her because one piece of wisdom she gave me about the book was at some point I had written most of it and I showed it to her and I was terrified and she was terrified, um, but she read it and she said, at the end, she said, I, I just have to tell you, David, there's a problem. It's not very funny. And I uh, freaked out, but I knew she was right. And I went back and I started working again and turned out the book that exists today, which is not totally hilarious all the way through, but I do, my sense of humor does dominate the book. And uh, I thank her for that bit of feedback. It was really important to me. So I want to, um, I want to ask you something I've never asked before. I want to know about the inside story of how you work 
like, do you draw a hundred cartoons a week? Do you take them to a secret drop box at the New Yorker? Do you wait until the next morning? Do you, you know, how, how does it happen? How, how, weekly, what's your job like every week? And what's it like being edited at the New Yorker? Does, does your editor edit you or, or just say yes or no? Okay. Uh, there's no short answer to that. First, uh, the logistics of the situation. Every Tuesday at noon is the deadline and all, all the us cartoonists send in what we call our roughs, our sketches, the ideas that we've come up with during the week that we hope to sell to the magazine. Uh, I tend to send in 10 or 15 sometimes a week. And I'm lucky if on Friday I get an email saying I sold one, uh, I only sell 20 odds cartoons a year. So if you add it up, that's a lot of rejection. And one thing cartoonists get very good at is dealing with rejection. So what I tend to do, especially on Monday and Tuesday morning, the pressure of the deadline seems somehow to cause the ideas to come more quickly. So that's when I get most of my cartooning done. That's when I look over the things I've jotted down during the week I think back on the week of stuff that's happened that I might be able to make a cartoon about, or I just sit here at my desk and uh, it's almost a kind of meditation. I just open my mind up to possibilities that uh, I could turn into cartoons. And well, the best times are when something pops into my head that has absolutely nothing to do with what I was trying to make a cartoon about or thinking about those always surprise me and they're wonderful. And they tend to be the ones that get sold to the magazine. Uh, so the, the, the end of the story is that the cartoon editor uh, assesses all that thousand or so drawings that she looks at and she whittles it down to about 60. And then she has a meeting with the editor of the New Yorker, David Remnick on Wednesday, and they go through those 60 and David chooses the ones that will end up in the magazine. Uh, and so today, for example, is Friday. And while I'm conducting this conversation with you, I'm also watching my screen to see if there's an email from Emma, the editor, telling me I sold a cartoon this week. And Good it's luck. been, thank you. It's been this way <laughs> since 1998, uh, every Friday. So huh. Huh. Not, not a relaxing Friday, I guess. Um, so this is really switching tacks, but um, one thing I know about you is that you love food. Um, you and I have eaten good food together and, and shared sources and places. And uh, so, so you have the, and the funny thing, the, your kind of food origin story is in this book. You tell that? Well, first of all, I have to say you're right. I've done more cartoons about food than anything else. It's a, a favorite subject of mine. And in the book, the first story I tell is about uh, my family having dinner at my parents' favorite restaurant, which was a, a sort of Neapolitan tie and jacket, red sauce, sort of fancy, but uh, the food not so fancy restaurant across the street from my father's store on Lexington Avenue. It was called Gino's. It went out of business in 2010. And we ate there at least twice a month, all through my childhood. And my father loved that restaurant. He would walk in and he was friendly with the owner, Gino. They had both opened 
their businesses around the same time in 19, in the late 1940s. And my father would walk in and the hat check lady would say, good evening, Mr. Nat, and the bartender, good evening, Mr. Nat, and the waiters. And my father was always greeted like a special person there and he loved that. And we would sit and have dinner and um, I loved the food there. And uh, what I also loved and what my mother and especially loved was the celebrities that kept coming in every time we ate there, you know, Joe DiMaggio would walk through the door or Richard Burton would be sitting in the back with Elizabeth Taylor uh, and Peter O'Toole. And it was, and my father would always say, don't gape, which was really hard to do. In any case, on one of those nights, uh, when I was uh, um, eight years old, we ate dinner there and we stepped out of the restaurant and we were trying to figure out whether to take a taxi home, whether to take, you know, how to get home. And there was a, a little poodle out there that was barking like crazy. And um, we, we talked about the poodle a little, and then we walked away. I could still hear the poodle about a block away. But when I finally got home that night, I drew my first actual cartoon, which is in the book. And it's a very rough hewn drawing of a dog confronting the trunk of a tree going bark, bark. And uh, that was a pun. That was my very first actual cartoon. So I always will be grateful to Gino's for giving me that. I'm, I'm looking at that cartoon right now and it's still really good and funny, but um, yeah, your drawing has gotten better. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm looking at the, the, in the book, I'm looking at the cartoon on the opposite page and realizing why what, your, your, your line, everything about your line is funny. Tell me how you make, how you make things funny just by the quality of your line. Well, I can't take entire credit for that because it has a lot to do with the, the pen that I use. I use a pen, a croquil pen, um, it's a little hard to describe in words, but it, it's, a, it's a stiff instrument that has a slightly flexible point on the end of the holder that you, uh, pen point that you uh, put into the holder and, and dip it into ink. And what I love about it is it's absolutely impossible to completely control it. I mean, after 50 years, I could control it a certain amount, but there's always, and the first chapter in the book is called A Happy Accident. And they're always happy accidents. There are these moments when the pen slips, when the ink spills a little, that, that give the line this sense of uh, spontaneity that I really love. I, I admire cartoonists whose drawings are elaborate with ink washes and perfectly painted, but I like my drawings to, I like the reader to think he thought it up and he drew it. No hesitation, no, nothing in between, just this very direct sense of drawing the idea. And I think that's what my line expresses. Uh, but again, I thank my croquel pen a lot for that. Yeah, it's all due to the pen, I'm sure. Um, you know, that what when you're just saying, you know, that lack of control, I think um, that's a that's a preoccupation with yours. That's something, I mean, you, you know, writing and cartooning humor and creativity are a way of navigating the difficult stuff about family, about the control you don't have in this world. Um, and it seems a little profound to me that you would put yourself in that situation with a pen just to, to gin up the creativity. 
Well, it's a pretty safe way to take risks. And, you know, there's always something called white app when you make a mistake, or these days something called Photoshop. So it's not really a very big risk. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, I have, cartoons have helped me navigate all the difficult, scary things that I've experienced, um, especially the things that I write about in the book about my family. It's not that cartoons are therapy and they make you feel better. It's that it's almost like my compulsion when something scary happens, when something makes me angry, it's just the first place I think of going to is to make a cartoon about it. And it's helped me not take myself so seriously, uh, which uh, is has been really important to help me get through the some of that difficult stuff. And um, it's it's not, and even just the physical act of drawing, of touching a pen to a page, always calms me down and uh, makes me feel centered. Ever since I was a kid, so the cartoons have uh, really been a valuable way. Uh, to help me live my life and uh, get through stuff. Maybe to end, you could just expand that for a second. You write about just the sheer thrill of coming up with an idea, you know, that moment when you just get, so what's that like? It's not all about just quelling anxiety. What What's it like just to think of a cartoon? Well, there, there are some ideas that absolutely blow my mind. And those are generally the ones that I, I didn't expect or that come at a moment when I wasn't even thinking about making a cartoon. And sometimes I've hung drawings up on my wall and looked at them for months, if not years. And then at some point I'll glance at that drawing and I'll finish the cartoon in my head when I'm least expecting it. And when that happens, it's a, it's a physical sensation, a thrill, a sort of starburst that goes off behind my eyes. And I feel happy in a way I almost don't feel at any other time in my life. It's that unexpected arrival of an idea that comes as if it happens to you, not as if you're responsible for it, as if the cartoon made the idea. And that that is the most marvelous thing about doing what I do. And it makes it's the thing I love most about my work. Thank you, David. Um, I know David and I are both thrilled to be speaking to an audience of librarians. Thank you, librarians. Um, David's book, What's So Funny? A Cartoonist Memoir, will be published on March 8th. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.